This is episode number 337 with Chief Scientist at our studio, Hedley Wickham. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today, we have none other but the legendary Hedley Wickham. Uh, this is a person who doesn't need much introduction. He's the author of ggplot2, of dplyr, of tidyverse, of many, many, many R packages as a professor. He recently received the COPS Award, which is a very prestigious award. It's the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for statisticians. It's the first time in history it's been awarded uh, not for theoretical development in statistics, but actually for software development. Um, this is a person with tens of thousands of followers online who's written multiple books, uh, makes appearances at conferences and runs presentations. Hadley is one of the key people driving our studio and our, and our programming language forward. So very, very excited. I was very excited to talk to uh, Hadley and we covered off a lot of topics. So we talked about packages in R and how they compare to Python. And specifically, we talked about the differences between R and Python. I learned quite a lot of new things for myself. Production development in R, looking at things from a fresh mindset. Different conferences. We talked about the Use R conference and the R Studio conference. And then I actually posted on LinkedIn a request for questions for Hadley, and quite a lot of questions came in. So I asked them, and you will get to hear not just what I'm interested in learning from Hadley, but also what your peers, other fellow data scientists listening to this show, are interested in hearing from Hadley. So you will get answers to a lot of those questions which are diverse, ranging from the questions about the future to career questions, to more technical questions, to community questions. Well, to sum it up, it was a lot of fun having Hadley on the podcast. I learned a lot and I'm sure you will learn a lot too from one of the most influential people in data science right now. So without further ado, I bring to you Chief Scientist at our studio, Hadley Wickham. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. And today I have a legendary guest, Mr. Hadley Wickham is with us today. Hadley, how are you going? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, very good. Um, and uh, you are in Houston today. Uh, when was the last yep. time you went to New Zealand? Uh, I was just there in... No, I can't even remember what month it was. Uh, <laughs> in early December. 
Early December. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. I was I was there in I was there end of November, early December as well. I I got to say I love your country. It is just the most beautiful place, especially out of like last year I did North Island at the start of the year and South Island at the end. Uh-huh. Like they're both beautiful. North Island is by far my favorite. It's just incredible. Like I I how how come is it so beautiful all the time? Yeah. <laughs> And no, it is beautiful. The, the downside is it's just like so far away from the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess maybe that, that's, uh, that's a trade-off that you, yep. you have. Um, but it's like so neat, like driving from Auckland down to Hobbiton and from Hobbiton down to Rotorua. Oh. It's just like everything is lined up. Every single bush, every single tree is, is in a line. It's, it's just incredible. And the hills. <laughs> have you been yep. to Hobbiton yourself? I have have not. It's actually pretty. I I grew up in Hamilton, so it's actually fairly close to where my parents live. But I have not. Um, I have not visited. Yet. Are you keeping it for later? Uh, possibly never. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. Um, well, just wanted to mention that it's a really really cool country, and if anybody listening hasn't been to New Zealand, highly recommend. Uh, very exciting. But you are now in America. How long have you been in in America for? Uh, I think it's coming up like 15 years. 15 years. Oh, wow. wow. So yeah. since you, you went to do your PhD there, you've stayed there? Yeah, that's right. Mm. And how do you like it there? I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of like home. And now I feel like I'm sort of a Texan, New Zealand slash Texan now. Uh, I became a citizen two years ago. So Wow, congrats. Kind of, kind of made a life here. Um, nice. So I still miss I miss New Zealand, but now when I go back to New Zealand, there's things about here I miss as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you you've moved around the US quite a bit, haven't you? Uh, not too much. I lived in Iowa for my PhD, and then I've been in Houston for like the last ten, eleven years. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I was listening to a podcast with you recently, and you it was interesting to find out that ggplot two actually came out of. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the main reason for your PhD. It was just like a side effect of your PhD, and then and then you switched your PhD to to work on that. Was that is that the correct story? Yeah. So I, I mean, I wouldn't say switch so much as it was sort of just something I discovered uh, in the course of my PhD. So I was a like the funding for my PhD um, was I did a consulting assistantship, which meant that I would help PhD students from other departments do their statistics. Mm-hmm. And like in the course of that, I just it just really brought home to me that like often the the modeling part of the problem was like often the kind of the, the it just felt like this easy bit you did at the end after you've done all this like data munging and done a bunch of visualizations to figure out what's actually going on, then you could do the model. But that that would just it just felt like that modeling wasn't the hard part, which is which is really weird to me because that's what I'd always sort of been taught in all my classes that you know modeling was was hard mm. uh, yeah and that's i think that's the case with most data scientists listening to this that we spend 70 to 80 percent at least from my experience and from some of our students experiences that we spend 70 to 80 percent of our time uh just preparing the data why do you think that is the case i, I don't know i think some of it i think it's just part of it i think is just that most data is not collected for the purposes of analysis. And so a lot of the time you are analyzing data that's been collected for some other purpose, for, for some other set of constraints, like 
it wasn't connect collected to make your life easy. It's collected for some other purpose. Mm. And now you're trying to, to get some, some other value out of it. And I think that, that just means like, you know, part of the process is, is just like getting to grow up grips with how the data is and figuring out how to get into the form that would be most useful for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, so you have two creations there in that space. You have ggplot2 and uh, at least two. And uh, you have the whole tidyverse and uh, mm -hmm. also dplyr. So like, how in what sequence did you come up with these? Because they all kind of address the same issue. ggplot2 allows you to visually see the data and helps you like explore and see yeah. any outliers or patterns in advance. dplyr allows you to like um, help you work with the data actually better and um put it especially into um like link it up with structured data sources and then finally like the tidyverse is just a whole collection of things like in which order did they come about kind of like a, a little backwards i mean i think you know ggpot2 was really my kind of first major package like I, I'd used the visualization tools in R before, but you know, which are which are pretty good. But I, I found them kind of like they were just like a few things that I found really hard to do. And so, you know, then I, I worked on ggplot two, and it made those hard things much less difficult. And kind of then a new set of things like bubbled up to being more challenging. I think one of those one of those things that was particularly challenging was like getting the data in kind of the right format, like this idea of tidy data. Which I can now explain really easily. You want you want the columns in your in your data set to be variables, mm. and I think that that's really like natural to you if you're a statistician or a data scientist. But it's not something that people are like born knowing. Mm. And so a lot of data you'll get is in some other format. You'll look at it and you'll be blown away by how crazy that format is. But it makes <laughs> sense to the, the person who collected it, and you've got to get it into that form. So then I spent this time working on reshape, which and then reshape to and then tidy out that helps with that hmm. uh, but like uh, can you use an example what what uh so data where columns are variables like how can that not be the case so one um one data set i still vividly remember um from my time at iowa state the the day the columns were actually days so oh. each column was like one day when they oh. when the, the, the the phd student had gone out into the field and recorded something Hmm. Um, and so then the column headers are like January 1st, February 1st, March 1st. Okay. And, you know, that's a, that's a fine way to record the data, but you, it's really, really difficult to analyze it that way because you want one column that's like date and you want like another column that's the thing you actually measure. Yeah, gotcha. So it's kind of like an unpivoted view would be human friendly, yeah. but not machine friendly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, or like yeah, gotcha. re recording for friendly, but not analysis friendly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And so that was the... Oh, I can see how that would be useful, extremely useful in the case of like research, because as you, yeah, you just like pointed out that it's easy to record that way. It's much harder yeah. to record. The other so way. like I, I went back, like I recently, I, I gave a talk about this in, in Australia. And so I actually went back to that, that I kind of remembered this. I went back and looked at the code and I was like, I don't know, maybe I maybe wrote 50 or 60 lines of R code, like a bunch of functions, a bunch of for loops. Like it was a real sort of programming challenge mm -hmm. to get the data in the right format. And then I rewrote it using some of the, the tools I've been working on lately out of the tidy R package. And it's like six lines of R wow. code now. And it's not just, I think it's not just the number of lines of code, but it's that kind of mindset. It's not like a 
programming problem anymore. It's now like a data science problem where you're thinking about how do I pivot this data into the form that I that I actually want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and you, on one of your talks, you also mentioned that SQL hasn't been changed like in thirty years, and so yeah. even though it's very like broad and and powerful, the sh- amount of data we have now and the, the veracity of data should inspire different ways of thinking about it. Is that is that something behind like your dplyr package? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, SQL is like, you know, it's an amazing language. And the fact that, you know, it has, you know, it's, I guess it must be coming up on like, what, 40, 40 year plus years old, and it's still being used by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It's incredible. Um, and I still feel like, I don't know, it's, it's, I still feel like it's very arrogant of me to claim that, that, that Dplyr maybe might be better than SQL. Hmm. some ways but i but i think i think it is because it's trying to solve a much much smaller problem than than sql is trying to solve where sql has this like very very you know the, the goal is to be able to handle very high throughput of data capture it reliably and handle all sorts of all sorts of problems whereas i think data science the, the problems of data science or at least the problems that you know i think about the most are a little bit a little bit simpler you've just got like you know, maybe, you know, if one to five different tables of data, you've got like maybe 20 variables, you might have like hundreds of thousands of millions of observations. So your data is like very long, but it's typically quite narrow. And it's not like changing that often, like it, maybe it's changing like every hour, every day, you know, but it's not changing like every millisecond. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think so like we never things like that the sort of fundamentals change. I think you can like rethink the language and the interface. And mm-hmm. and of course we've you know learned a bunch about programming and programming languages in the you know the 40 years since SQL's been around. So I think there's some really nice things about Dplyr um, that just make your life make life a little bit more pleasant. Mm, gotcha. Um, speaking of data science, how would you define data science? Curious to get your thoughts on that. So, I mean, my my definition is kind of like data, and my definition is like data data science is like data analysis, kind of by programming, hmm. uh, which of course kind of begs the question of what data analysis is. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I think of data analysis really as sort of any activity where kind of the input is is data, and the output is like understanding or knowledge or insights. So I think of that pretty broadly, and then to do data science, you're not doing it by like pointing and clicking. You're doing it by writing, you know, some code in a programming language. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I guess our definitions would differ on that a little bit because, for me, data science is like, for instance, somebody who can't program and is just really good at communicating insights to business decision makers or government decision makers that I would call that person also a data scientist. But in your definition, I would be like more of an analyst. Yeah, and I think like it's not like being an analyst is not like a bad thing. It's just it's just different <laughs> using like a different set of tools. And, you know, you, that's a really important set of tools and the ability to communicate, you know, what you've discovered incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, I just wouldn't call that person a data scientist and like, you know, my personal personal definition for whatever that means. Okay, okay, gotcha. All right, very, very cool. Um, and uh, speaking of Dplyr, I wanted to ask you, like, uh, I'm guessing the alternative in Python would be Pandas. Like, any comments on how the two compare? 
Yeah, so it's sort of interesting. I think one other thing that's kind of interesting about like Python versus R as a language is that because um, because of the design of the language of, of Python, there's these sort of subtle pressures to have kind of larger, kind of more monolithic packages. So in some ways, like pandas in Python is actually equivalent to like dplyr and tidyr and readr and like a handful of other packages in R. Like it's a much, much bigger tool. And you can see kind of the same thing with like scikit-learn. Um, you've got, you know, scikit-learn, which is equivalent to maybe, you know, 10 or 20 different modeling packages in R. Um, and I think this is kind of, it's sort of interesting because it's both like a strength and a weakness. Like it's great to have these, these like single, these sort of single artifacts that have a unified vision, they can be much more like consistent internally, but it like gets harder to kind of grow them over time. It's like harder for people to contribute just pieces of functionality or ex experiment. Um, so I don't know, I, I, that's one of the things I find really interesting, um, but kind of about, you know, the differences between Python and R. And, and there's a really, um, but the other thing I think is really interesting is like the Julia community, Julia as a language mm -hmm. in many ways is kind of more similar to R than to Python. And there's a really nice talk, um, I forget the name of it, at uh, Julia Khan about, uh, about this kind of idea that there's actually a surprising, like when you're, when you're used to languages like Python, there's like much, it's a surprisingly high amount of code reuse in Julia because of this different, the, the way the object-oriented programming is designed, which makes it much easier to kind of reuse code across package boundaries, which I think is really, really interesting. That's in Julia. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. R is the same. It uses a style of, I mean, the, the basic difference is in most object-oriented languages, um, like Python, methods belong to classes or to objects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in R and Julia, uh, methods belong to functions called generic mm -hmm. functions. Mm -hmm. And just that, that it sort of seems like such a subtle distinction, but, but somehow that makes it much, much easier to, to share code across packages because one package can provide the kind of the definition, the, the interface of a function, and many, many different packages can provide implementations for different types of, of objects. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that seems to be a really good fit for data science somehow. Interesting. But in Python, couldn't you just take a, an object and have like a dummy object with just a function inside and use that to define it the same way as yeah, you do now? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of work around it. it. You know, it's not like this is something it's impossible to do. Just like well, what's kind of easier and what's harder in the language. It's just like a little bit higher friction and mm. and then you've got to use that this sort of like inversion of control type techniques to... Interesting. Wow, wow. I didn't know that. That's very, very cool kind of like core difference that then goes into very various things. I'm just curious, like how often do you use Python yourself? Like everybody knows you're like one of the most famous R users on the planet, but how often do you open Python? Uh, I mean, basically never. I never, <laughs> I never write code in Python. I like, I kind of read, I try and read like a, you know, a moderate amount. I'm always, um, kind of looking to you know see what's happening in the the python ecosystem how people are like expressing themselves just to see like you know you know what's going on what 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 ideas can we kind of take and what ideas can i steal and and and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. but you know it's not so i read it's like python i like to kind of keep on you know not i'm not 
it's not like I'm kind of following every detail, but just kind of keeping an eye on Python mm. and Julia and what's going on in Rust and you know what what are the hot new exciting programming languages people are excited about at the moment. Mm. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting that um, I also heard you say like one of your. Um, I guess uh, dreams or wishes for the fi next five years is uh, to find better integrations between R and Python. Could you talk a bit about that? Like, what's what's the purpose of bringing these two languages closer together? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's kind of interesting to me about R and Python is that the like the way you write really really fast Python code is basically the same way you write really really fast R code i.e. you just write C code. Um, that, that's a, like a little bit of a simplification, but I think you know a lot of the really high-performance computing in both R and Python is implemented in C. And both R and Python have really good tools to talk with C. And if that's the case, like why not like team up? Sure, we don't, you know, sure we maybe want to work with you know R programmers and Python programmers see the way that uh, programs kind of interact and compose a little bit differently. But if the underlying engine is the same, like, you know, it just seems to make sense to kind of share that, share that effort. Hmm. Um, and that, and that's one of the, the ideas behind the, the arrow project, which, uh, Wes, Wes McKinney's working on, like, let's, let's, let's team up, let's put a bunch of thought into the underlying design of the, the memories, the data structures and memory, the C and C plus plus code. And then let's provide like, interfaces for R and Python. So, you know, you use whatever makes you most effective as a data scientist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the one, actually, uh, somebody mentioned this. So I posted questions on, uh, I posted on LinkedIn that we're going to have this interview and quite a few students, like over a dozen students posted questions for you. And one of them was actually about that, um, uh, that you're working uh, with Ursa Labs on this Apache mm -hmm. project. Um, so how's that going so far? So so far, I have not been doing much much work on it. Um, but uh, that's one of the things I have planned for for this January is to start uh, working uh, with the Ursa Labs team on an Arrow backend for for Dplyr. Because one uh. of the things that I think is particularly neat about Dplyr is it kind of separates out the the interface of the the, the way you describe the operations that you want to do for the data set from the actual implementation. So Dplyr has like this native R backend that that um, that works on data frames. It's got a backend that translates Dplyr code to use data table, which is a you know a really fantastic, another really fantastic data manipulation package in R. And it also converts, can convert uh, your R code into SQL code so you can mm. work with the database. But so the, the kind of the next step is to do the same thing for Arrow. So you can write you know, dplyr code, the same dplyr code you're used to, it gets translated so that into calls to Arrow, and then, you know, that works on this shared memory data structure where the, the data could be, you know, you could be working simultaneously, potentially, and eventually on the same data set in R and in Python at the same time. Hmm. But wouldn't the whole notion that in R you have uh, vectorized, you know, just like the whole vectorized structure of R, wouldn't that get in the way of if, like ultimately integrating the two languages so it's a i i think for most kind of data scientists the most of the tasks that data scientists do that kind of vectorization actually helps you because mm -hmm. 
you end up writing kind of higher level statements of intent. Mm-hmm. And and that I think generally may make that's sort of generally easier to like optimize into or translate into some other language. Like when you're um, working with like you know low level kind of for loops, for loops are like a very very general tool. So you've got to apply like a lot a lot more um, thinking and smarts to be able to translate for loops into something that is really efficient in, a, in another language. Mm-hmm. With a, whereas like when you're working with these kind of vectorized operations like you know sums and ranks, you know there's maybe like I don't know thirty or forty of these kind of vectorized operations that allow you to solve like I don't know ninety percent, ninety five percent of the challenges you face as a data scientist. And so I think this like works really well for data science. It doesn't, I think work well as like a general kind of programming tool. Um, but for data science, somehow I think that the, just this idea of like vectorized functions kind of matches the, the problem well enough that it, that it works out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I don't, uh, like I agree with you. I think that, uh, in many cases, the, the vectorization of R is going to be like, can be beneficial, more beneficial to data science specifically. Um, however, it's just the question of like, I'm curious, how do you reconcile that with Python that doesn't have that vectorization? Like, is, is it a major roadblock in this project that, uh, you're undertaking? I don't think so it's basically because it's sort of easier to translate vectorized to non-vectorized code because basically what we have to do is add a for loop mm. but going in the opposite direction is much much harder like if i wanted to translate python code into the r equivalents i think that that would be really challenging because mm. you know just because for loops are so general it would be hard it would be very challenging to implement to kind of translate them back into the equivalent efficient r code Mm-hmm. But going from R to Python is, is much simpler because you tend to have kind of higher level expressions in, in, in R. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And in one interview, you actually said that uh, you see a company in the following way, that the data science team uses R and the data engine- engineering team uses Python. And we're kind of like going into more and more of a world where, like even, oh, by the way, <laughs> I mentioned this before the, uh the podcast but i want to say it again for like for everyone who's not aware congratulations on the cops prize that's that's a huge huge accomplishment like how did you feel about that that was that was um i mean that was fantastic just i mean obviously like it was you know a great kind of recognition of 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 my work but i i think the thing that was particularly exciting was that like i'm the first kind of non-theoretical statistician to win it if you look at the the, the previous winners, they've all contributed to statistics by, you know, you know, proving theories, basically. And and that is it's very clear that that is not what I do. Yeah. So I think it was a really neat kind of signal from the statistics community that, like, you know, programming and data science is important, is is really you know, the core part of statistics, too. Yeah, and I've heard it's like an equivalent of the Nobel Prize for statistics. So huge accomplishment. And what, what, what I was going to actually say is, that's what I also um, I've heard you say before that it's a it's an interesting shift that uh, the COPS Prize was given not for theoretical development of statistics but rather that than uh, than that it was software and mm-hmm. um, call, like uh, product development in 
mm-hmm. uh, programming. And so the question I had was like, you see R being used by the data science team, Python more by the data engineering team. How can we actually use R for developing software, developing products, or is it purely uh, going to stay as like an analytical tool? So I, I think you can't, you can't, you definitely can use R to develop products and, and people do. I, I think you mostly see this kind of split, not, not, not due so much to kind of like the fundamental differences between R and Python as programming languages, but more in terms of like the, the background of people involved and like where the communities have spent their effort, you know, over the last 20 something years. So that like, you know, people with existing expertise in DevOps coming now to apply their t- skills to data science, they, they already know Python and, and they want to keep using it. I, I, you know, I think a lot of it's as simple as that. Um, and so part of that, and so, you know, part of the reason that um, Python feels really natural in production is that like so many people have already put it in production. Like there's a lot of existing knowledge in the community, like, no one ever got fired for using Python kind of <laughs> thinking. Um, I'm sure people have, but you know, it's, it's, it seems like a safe language now. Mm. Um, whereas it are uh, like the you know, the lots of companies are using in production now, but still the kind of the the understanding and the sort of the the knowledge is not like percolated out into the community so much. And and that, you know, that's something we really um think a lot about it at, at our studio like how can we help people to you know put their R code into production more robustly mm, so what's the plan how how you do you think you'll tackle that so i've kind of the the packet the, the the there's a few different teams working on this so you know one one way we we tackle this is we you know our studio makes money by selling software and some of the software we sell is, or one of the tools we sell is called uh, RStudio Connect. And mm-hmm. basically, it's that just makes it really, really easy to you know deploy R code so it runs robustly in the same environment, like you know day after day after day. Um, one of the ways my team is working on that problem is, I, I think there's like a, there's kind of a mindset. There's a there's a, a switch in. And, and mindset from like going from analysis and exploration to production mm-hmm, that you definitely. have to kind of start like stop thinking about like this very general like how like what what the heck is going on with this data and how do i uncover the important signal as quickly as possible to thinking about like how do i get this code how do i write code that is going to work like day in day out for the next couple of years and i mm-hmm. think there's like there, there's some sort of like mind shift there there's definitely like different languages um kind of features of the language kind of naturally like help you think in one of those mindsets um but also even even whatever language you're in i think acknowledging that there's there's different different techniques different approaches that you that you want to tackle Uh, and so one of the things that you know my team thinks about is like how do we help our users who traditionally, you know, typically don't have a software engineering background, how do we give them like the key skills of of software engineering? How do we help them, you know, learn about you know, whether it's peer programming or um, source code control or like test driven development? Like, how do we give them kind of the key 
the key tools of a software developer. They're never going to become like the best software engineer in the world, but how can we kind of give them the key tools mm-hmm. to start thinking about like writing robust uh, production ready code? Mm-hmm. And would you say that's an important skill to have for a data scientist? I think so. Um, you know, I think you you always have to kind of. I think you're always better off like becoming, getting really good at one thing, and then kind of expanding you, your skill set to become better and better at other things, like rather than being mediocre at a, a bunch of things. So, so I don't think you need to feel bad if you're not like a, a, if you don't have a bunch of software engineering skills. But I think that is something that, like over time, if you develop those skills, that that really increases your impact as a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. This gotcha. Gotcha. You know, improving your communication skills does as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like we live in a world where analysis allows you to extract insane insights, but at the same time, I would say software development is uh, a skill that allows you to build leverage, so that then you can impact not like just one company or one organization or you know, a, a small group of people, but you can scale your impact to hundreds of thousands and millions of people. Like if you know how to write good software that is uh, going to be used worldwide, or is that going to just going to keep working in the background and can scale, that's how you scale your impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something, um, you know, that's something I tell people, you know, tell people in academia as well. Like if you really want to have an impact on the world, I think writing high quality software that people actually use that is like just as impactful, if not more impactful than, you know, writing papers that get a ton of citations. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, as, as I mentioned before, I posted a question on LinkedIn for people to ask you questions and we've got quite a few come in. Would you like to go through them and just like, uh, like sure. do a rapid fire? All right. So Jennifer Cooper asks, if faced with a choice, why should someone choose R over Python? So I think R, um, it's an obvious choice. If you've never programmed before, uh, I think you can learn data science in R and then you can learn how to program in R. Uh, I think the other reason to choose R, like fantastic, fantastic community online, a bunch of people like really excited that you're learning R and happy to help you out. Fantastic. Great, great answer. Um, Another one from Jennifer Cooper. What does the future look like for coding languages like R given the rise of automated ML and drag and drop tools? I I think they're going to remain strong. I am pretty skeptical about drag and drop tools because the hard part about programming is not typing. The hard part about like the hard part is not that you're typing words rather than dragging thing and connecting with the lines. It's figuring out what those connections should be. And programming languages just give you this like fantastic set of tools for sharing and critiquing that you just cannot get with drag and drop tools. Hmm. But wouldn't you say drag and drop is just like a faster way to get insights? Uh, I think... I mean, the other problem with drag and drop tools is you're like fundamentally constrained mm. by the author of that tool. You can only do the things that they want to want to be easy. Whereas with a programming language, you know, some things are easier, some things are harder, but you never like fundamentally stop from doing something. So I think in any drag and drop and any kind of GUI tool, you always get to a point where you're like, oh, I'd really like to be able to do this thing that really makes sense for my analysis. And there's there's not that widget. So you're stuck. 
That's true. Or or getting to that widget, um, like I'm learning uh, right now, like very advanced level of Tableau and getting to that widget, you can get there, but you have to know extremely advanced features and concepts. Whereas in programming, as long as you know how to program it, you, you know you're going to get there like eventually somehow. And, and then the other great thing about programming is like once you've saved, solved it for today's data set, like you can apply it to tomorrow's data set just as easily. Yeah. And then you can turn it into a package and then release ggplot2. Exactly. Something like that. Okay, another third one from Jennifer Cooper. What is your advice to someone learning R who may be overwhelmed by all the syntax libraries and modeling techniques? Any tips, tricks, shortcuts to remembering it all? Uh, I think so. I think some of it you just have to accept like you're not going to remember it all and like and that's fine and that this it's just like learning uh, you know a new human language it takes a while before you can become fluent and there's like there's no way around that like it happens to everyone so don't 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 feel despondent um don't don't blame yourself that you're you're too dumb to remember this like absolutely everyone has to go through that uh, i think like doing some structured practice can help um Learning some, um, you know, like doing sort of flashcard stuff where you just kind of practice that one aspect of recall can be valuable. Um, I think the other thing that can be really valuable is like find some, you know, people to, to walk down the road with you. So you've, you've got you've got friends, you've got colleagues who are like struggling the same as you who can like commiserate you when things are going badly and can <laughs> celebrate you when things are going great. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's a it's a long it's a long journey, but it's worth getting there. A question from Morgan Mendes, an advanced data scientist who's actually been on the podcast just recently. Um, what is your preferred method of multidimensional analysis? Uh, I don't know if I have a preferred method of multidimensional analysis. I mean, I I would. This is a little bit of a glib answer, um, but I, you know, I would just always start with, like I always start with visualization just to get a sense of like what is actually going on with this data. Because I don't, I, you just, I don't know. I, I think if you, if you, if the kind of first five discoveries of your data analysis project are not data quality problems, that just means there's data quality problems you have not discovered. So like really like figuring out what the heck is going on with the data first before you do any kind of formal modeling. Okay, well, gotcha. You wouldn't like jump into dimensionality reduction before uh, discovering Abs your data Yeah, set. absolutely not. What if you have so many dimensions that like it's just really hard to un even guess where to start <laughs> visualizing? Yeah, I mean, that's basically a problem that I do not have. Um, <laughs> so I do not have any good advice. I, you know, I think in that case, dimensionality reduction can be really useful I, you just have to be a little skeptical you know take it iteratively do some reductions like look for the weird points trace them back to the original variables like are those variables make sense like are they do are they looking really weird because nas have been characterized has been have been stored as negative 999 like that's the sort of stuff you need to be thinking about like very early on mm -hmm. gotcha why did you say you don't have you don't usually have that problem just because the the type of problems I normally work with, like I'm, you know, I'm not a data scientist anymore, really. I'm I'm someone who develops tools for data science, so I'm mostly playing around with like data sets that are interesting to me, which you know tend to have like maybe ten or twenty or a hundred variables, but not like thousands or tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I was actually going to ask you that. This is a question that came to my mind. Like I was. 
uh, listening to a podcast with you, then reading an interview with you. And I just thought, like, you're just constantly coming up with these new things. Like, now you're working on DT Plier. So not just DT Plier, mm-hmm. but DT Plier, which sounds like a super exciting project. Like, uh, you have to have a different kind of mindset. Like, I, I don't know, like, I could maybe randomly come up with one of these ideas. Yeah. But unless I see the programming language, I see, unless I look at R from a completely different perspective to what normally people see in it, I wouldn't be able to keep coming up and improving these ideas. And, you know, no wonder you got this prize and no wonder, like, you're so recognized. Like, is there a secret? How do you do this? I, I don't know. I think, like, a part of it is I do have, like, a terrible, like, my long-term memory for things that I've done is, like, quite surprisingly terrible. Um, <laughs> And so that like kind of means that I attack these, I can attack the same problem with like a fresh, kind of a fresh view because I've forgotten what the heck I did last time. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's kind of embarrassing. Like I ask the same question like again and again and again, like with sort yeah. of a two year <laughs> interval between it. Um, uh, but I think like somehow like it, it's part of that and just trying to, it, I think one of the, the, the challenges is like, like how do you avoid coming sort of trapped by your success like how do you make sure like the the things that you've done in the past that have made you successful like you can't just keep doing them again and again and again and and hope to be continue to be successful it's like this sort of like model like retraining thing right You, you can't just fit a model and then expect that model to keep on working year after year after year it's it somehow you've got to like think like what what has changed in the world since i last tackle this problem how can i like come at it with a fresh mindset and, and maybe tackle it in a, in a new way uh, the, the, you know that's all sort of very vague i don't know if i have any like no that's really good I, I love that answer now <laughs> now i have something to tell my girlfriend next time she says you keep forgetting everything i'll say well <laughs> i'm just following hadley's advice oh that's awesome but i i get your point would you say that is a useful skill to look at things from a fresh perspective um, yeah, even yeah. though it's going to put you behind in terms of like how quickly you can address a problem, but do you think that would be useful for data scientists as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's this balance, like you, you don't want to be doing this all of the time. Like there's always this sort of balance, I think of being like being successful in the short term and being successful in the long term. Like if you just optimize for being successful in the long term, like doing the, you know, the thing that, that, that your boss wants you to do by, by tomorrow, like that, that in the long run, you're not successful. But if all you do is think, well, like, where do I want to be in five years time? I want to focus on that. I just want to be learning the stuff that's not going to pay off for two or three years. If you do that, like, you know, you fail in the short term because you've lost your job because you've missed all yeah. these important deadlines. So yeah. kind of getting that balance right. But I think it's really important to like carve out time where you're not just like solving today's problem. You're thinking about like trying to take a step back and saying, well, like, how could I be salt? How could I be doing everything that I'm doing more efficiently? Mm. Interesting. You 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 speak of balance. Would you say you struck that balance, or would you say you went in the extreme to the other side of the spectrum, where you're like just thinking about long term problems all the time, and that's what makes you helps you stand out and really <laughs> you know, contribute to the world? I think I've always been fairly long term focused. But at the same time, yeah, I guess that's kind of what that was sort of one of my worries, like leaving mm. leaving academia, where I think one of the nice things about like teaching a class is like every year you're teaching like a the same thing to a new bunch mm-hmm. of students. So you're like 
you kind of like you get this reset button to push every year and you've got to kind of like start from scratch again you can't like get lost kind of lost in the clouds and i think like that was in the clouds like like you know leaving leaving academia into this environment where if i wanted to all i could do is focus on um like what what's going to be really important in like a year or two's time um but i th- I, and I think the thing that like really kind of pulls me back to earth now is like interacting with people like on on twitter who are like you know pe- people tell me pretty frankly all the time well not all the time but some of the time like when i create something that's like too complicated for people to understand like something that like makes perfect sense to me because i'm like embedded in it all i'm doing i'm thinking you know like 60 hours a week about r and how to express my ideas and r that i now i still get this feedback it, it doesn't make sense to me like but maybe it makes you maybe it makes me super powerful but it doesn't make like the average data site just doesn't help because it's too mm-hmm. you know too specific too or abstract you know, it's yeah. too, too out there it's not it's not concrete enough interesting sounds like you talk about art like it's a way of expressing yourself as like an art form for you is that how you see it yeah i mean i, I really you know like the the, the idea of ggplot2 um you know it's the grammar of graphics and mm. i sometimes sort of think about like well what's and then in some ways dplyr is like the grammar of data analysis mm. so like you know what do you like what what builds on top of grammars like how do we get mm. to like the kind of poetry of of graphics mm. or the poetry of their analysis and i think that that like being able to express yourself in code like that's just such a such a kind of a powerful mindset like thinking about code as this medium of communication I, that i think that's a really powerful kind of lens to to look at it that's really cool it's like your it's your um what is the thing painters have like yeah they have a paintbrush and that thing they hold in their hand I a palette palette yeah it's like your palette Actually, okay. a while ago, I read about um, yeah. someone who was uh, like a master's in fine arts in mm. programming. No way. Which I just thought was sort of a fascinating, like, you know, you study the study what the, the great masters have done and kind of copy it and like think of it. Just, I don't know, like I, that, that that's going a little too far, I think. <laughs> but that's such a like neat idea to think about like code, not just as a sort of mechanical telling what yeah. the computer, does, but as like a means of of expressing yourself and you know creating emotions in other humans yeah have you have you heard of the um iccc or something like that it's like the international c code confuscated (laughs) confuscated something c coding contest yeah like where who creates the most bizarre c code that actually works like for me like i learned about it like maybe 12 15 years ago and was like wow that is art in programming like kind of like uh postmodernism like we have in normal art you know like when like you have very strange looking things but they deliver a message same thing here like it's an art to code in a very obfuscated way so that people still works but people don't understand your code yeah absolutely you should start something like that in art that'll be fun (laughs) (laughs) okay um here's an interesting question i think i think we've kind of touched on this from arun uh but maybe just to like hit the nail on the head uh, all I hear is R is for analysis and Python is for production environment. Why can't we create a production environment based on R? How do you see this developing in the future? Yeah, so I think like you absolutely can create a production environment in R, and like you know, lots of um, big companies do. Uh, last year at R Studio Conf, uh, Jacqueline Nullis 
gave this really great talk about how they're using R in production uh, at T-Mobile. You know, they're using it to score millions of events like every day. Like there are, there's, there's like plenty of people who are doing this. I, I, I again, I think a lot of, um, I, I think sometimes a sort of pushback. You hear this from like data engineers that they're only they're primarily familiar with Python. They look at R, it looks really weird to them, makes them feel uncomfortable, and they're just like, no, I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> like Python's yeah. the only way you can write production. Yeah. Um, hmm. Are there any advantages of writing production in R other than Python? I mean, I, I think there's. Uh, I think the advantage is not. So I, I think there's a huge advantage in using the same language for exploration and mm. production, mm -hmm. because whenever you've got to like change languages, particularly if you're now kind of changing like people too, like as soon as you've got to like communicate. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what I. This is how I did the analysis, and now, like me as an R user, I have to explain it to you, a Python user, or a C plus plus user, or whatever. And you've got to re-implement it. That, that just that the human, the human to human communication is is so expensive. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Like in uh, in one role, I had to uh, build like a statistical model in SQL. And then, <laughs> which is already funny, right? But that was a that was a constraint at the organization. And then, um, when I communicated to the production guys, to the IT department, to put it into production, they actually had their own procedures. And they're like, yeah, no, we can't put it in the way you coded. We have to recode it. And just recoding it from SQL back to SQL, but in their own way, that was a whole nightmare. Like, you, you, there's so many, so much potential for errors along the way. Yeah, so you, you might enjoy the uh, tidy, sorry, the model DB package, which actually kind of translates R code modeling specifications into SQL. So you can do like linear regression that like it generates a SQL to do linear regression in the database and stuff, which is pretty cool. Very cool, very cool. Um, and you mentioned uh, the R Studio conference. I know you've you've attended the use R conference, use R or user mm -hmm. <laughs> conference. Use what's R. the what's the difference between the two, and which one would you recommend for our listeners to attend? You know, based on their journey and their career. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm biased, so I'm going to recommend our Studio Cup. Um, but I mean, they are quite quite different conferences. So um, use R kind of comes from an academic uh, heritage. So a lot of the a lot of the people presenting, um, you know, from academia, the there tends to be like a lot of lot more parallel tracks, like uh, I don't know six to ten parallel tracks. Wow, it's that's a lot. Uh, it's funny that you say it's a lot because the, the the kind of my conference as a statistician that I go to is the JSM, and and that has like fifty parallels. Oh. <laughs> so, Whoa! Um, how do you so, choose? Speaking of choice paralysis, uh, right? Like, yeah, how do you I mean, choose? You, it, Kind of ironically, because there are so many choices, you just end up picking like the things that you know are going to be good, so you never try anything. Yeah, it's like yeah, harder wow. to find something. <laughs> um, so user, like it's more academic, it's cheaper, uh, tends to be held in kind of like universities. It's a little smaller, like it's sort of eight hundred to a thousand people these days. Mm -hmm. uh, R Studio Conf, you know, much bigger. We're aiming for like twenty two hundred people maybe this year. Wow. Um, much bigger. We have we've gone up to four tracks this year from three tracks in the past. Um, kind of trying to keep it smaller and more focused. You know, it's, it's more of a kind of a industry conference. Like it's a little, 
don't know, it's a little ritzier, like the food's <laughs> the food's a little better. Um but but I still think either conference, like the the best thing about these conferences still this isn't gonna be true forever, but it's still true right now. Like the vast majority of people attending user or R Studio Comp are like the only person in their group or their company that's really excited about R. <laughs> and so you go from being like, I'm this like weirdo that really likes R and no one else likes it around me to being surrounded by, you know, a thousand other weirdos just like you. <laughs> and and that is like, you know, that is really, really fantastic and really, really fun in, in, in both conferences. Yeah, that sense of belonging, very important. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. And speaking of belonging, um, and actually, you know, community, there's a question, a great question from Desmond. I, I know I think you'll like this one because you're you're highly invested into um, equality and helping minority groups. So Desmond Choi um, asks, how can data scientists do pro bono work and give back to the community? Faced with unprecedented challenges such as climate change, fake news, growing in income inequality, are there data sets which data scientists, both professional and amateurs, could data wrangle, do EDA, exploratory data analysis, and model onto shared insights and contribute to solutions? Yeah, there's there's a number of really fantastic organizations that can help you if you're interested in doing this. Uh, I know DataKind is one. Uh, I think it's Data for Good yep. is another um, that let you basically kind of they match up like data scientists who want to give back in some way with um, you know companies doing or organizations doing you know important work in the world who don't have you know the budgets to be the higher really expensive data scientists. Uh, I think that's you know really fantastic way to give back as a data scientist uh, mm -hmm. is to you know find some organization you know maybe it's a local organization maybe it's kind of smaller i think that's awesome just find you know help people um help these these smaller groups these nonprofits, you know ngos really important data and you know desperately need the help of data scientists but but like how do you even approach them do you like send them an email saying hey i'm a data scientist i'm willing to contribute you know three hours a week of my time what can i work uh, i mean that's how i Normally, I mean, I, I have a, I work with a, there's a couple of organizations with where I kind of have semi-regular calls with just to chat with their data scientists and kind of answer any questions that they have. I mean, that, that's that's what worked for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how that that would generalize. I, I think the other thing you have to accept is that, um, like in most of these cases, you would be like the first data scientist, and you know, like the first data scientist generally can't do much data science mm -hmm. or you're not doing you're not going to be deploying like the latest in deep learning technology what where you can really provide value is to take those like 3000 excel spreadsheets they have and <laughs> get it into one nice clean csv file where you can start mm -hmm. to turn data into inside um, but i think i you know i think like reaching out to organizations directly or you know connect up with with data kind or one of these bigger organizations that kind of that provide these matchmaking services i think is a great way to get started mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh you you do yourself you do quite a lot of uh work uh, to help communities i really liked what you said in uh in one interview that like there's a lot of underrepresented groups uh in data science and 
it's uh like it, it's there is a way to help and help everybody feel comfortable in data science and pursue a career there and one of the things you said was like to build to build a nucleus of people who know each other and who can network and support each other tell us a bit about that and like what has your experience been with specific maybe groups where you've helped and have you seen this uh making this approach make an improvement yeah i mean i and i yeah i don't i don't know how much i have if i can directly contributed to these things but i where where possible like where i'm seeing kind of groups of people starting to kind of create some little nucleus like anything i can do to like help them you know i've tried to do I think one of the, the biggest successes in the R community, and you know, I I did very very little to do with it, is like R ladies because that mm. that that's gone from a you know a group of kind of like you know five women from various um, who started various user groups to this kind of like worldwide phenomenal that that you know tens of thousands of people are participating in and i think that like that 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 finding that core um those there's a few people who can like you know it's, it's going to like starting anything new is tough and having those those sort of people around you to like like keep you keep cheering you on is is, is so so important um mm. and I, I think the other thing that i think that the r ladies have done that is I think really contributed to their success is the sort of focus on process. Like it's not just about like how do we like how do we do a good meetup. It's like how do we help people create a new meetup that's going to be good. Like how mm. how do we how do we create like a meetup in a box that new meetup organizers? How can we give them some kind of like process, some checklist to follow, so that they they can get started in a way that is most likely to lead to success. Mm. And I think that that to me, like thinking about process, thinking about workflow, that like in every, I don't know, that's something I think about in like every aspect of, of life. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Have you, speaking of our ladies, have you met Gabriella? Dikeros? Yes, yes. Yep. She's really cool. She's been on the podcast twice now. And last time she was on, like, it's crazy. They've grown even between the two appearances on the podcast. I think they grew from something like 60 or 70 chapters to like 130 chapters around the world and like from from 30 or 20 countries to like over 40 countries they're they're doing huge progress i'm it is very inspiring as you say to observe like what impact they're having and i guess you're right it's like this uh model that they provide to people to create these meetups is is the key absolutely the tools okay all right um question uh oh desmond also had a bonus uh, follow-up question mm -hmm. it's more of a technical one um, what is what are your thoughts on useful but under the radar R fun R functions and packages that you personally use quite a bit? Um, again, I don't do that much in uh, data analysis and R. Uh, let me um, I don't know, like one of my I I think like one of my sort of favorite. Types of package now are these like ggplot2 extensions. Mm. Um, you know, one that I've I've loved for a long time is ggrepel. Uh, makes it really really easy to add like automatically label points on a scatter plot without all the labels like glomming on on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Really really useful package. Um, 
ESF has really revolutionized like plotting spatial data in R, just makes it like so much easier than it used to be. Um, well, there's some other ggplot2 extension that I was using recently. How does it feel that uh, people are just developing these extensions for for your original tool that you created a, w a little bit back? I mean, I, I find it like mind blowing. <laughs> I mean, the uh, the other thing that I just kind of blows my mind is there's now like you know our studio offers this tidyverse trainer certification, and that just like like sort of blows me away that not only like people are like learning and like teaching my stuff, but now there's a like a, a mechanism by which you can be like certified as a trainer. That, that, that's, yeah, wow. Just amazing. That's, that's really cool. Did did they get your approval to do that certification? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I mean, it's mostly happened without me, but I, you know, I did like look through the, the exams and it's a, it's a really, uh, Greg Wilson, who was involved in uh, software carpentry was really instrumental in getting this set up as well. It's like a fan, I think it's a really great kind of combination of like, pedagogy like how do you actually teach like anything well or how do you teach programming well plus uh, you know the, the basics of the, the stuff that i really believe in and the tidyverse yeah okay wow very cool that's a that's a huge testament <laughs> once is a certification for something that you've created for sure for sure okay um thank you for those so here's a couple career questions so mm -hmm. alexander perrine uh, or Alexander Perinam, I'm not sure how to pronounce this correctly. Sorry, Alex. Um, with data science being the current in-demand career path and all companies starting to employ data scientists, how does someone like myself that doesn't meet their required qualifications on a job posting combat and break into this field? And he uh, specifies that most required qualifications that I've seen are asking for 10 plus years of experience and, what, and want someone to know just about every program under the sun. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing to remember is that, like, when people when you're looking at job ads, they they often just they just have this like laundry list of things that in an ideal world they'd love to have, and just because they um, ask for that and you don't have it, shouldn't stop you from applying. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have like the kind of um, you know the experience or the credentials that they're looking for, you have to figure out how to sell your skills in some other way. And I, I personally believe like a really good way to do that is to think about building up like a data science portfolio, like a website where you can kind of show off like some of the prop, some of the projects you have, you have tackled. And I think doing that to sort of focus on, um, not like, oh, I'm an amazing programmer or, um, I, you know, know all the latest and greatest deep learning techniques. But focusing on like I, you know, I'm a problem solver. Like I can hit the round running. I can work with your data in whatever crazy format it lives in. <laughs> I can do some analysis, and then I can explain what I've done to people who are not experts. I, I think if you can build up that kind of portfolio through a combination of like kind of writing up case studies of things that you know maybe you can't share all the details, but you can share the broad outline, analyzing, you know freely available data sets that you're interested in um, these days, like the Tidy Tuesday project with a, hmm. a hashtag on Twitter, fantastic way of getting like a bunch of little data sets. Just show that you can like take some data and do something useful with it. Like that's what most companies want at the end of the day is someone who can like, you know, work with their data as it is and turn it into some useful insights for the company. Hmm. 
um yeah that's I love that approach. That's uh, something that I also recommend to students like all the time, build a portfolio. And you don't even need to launch your own website. It's gotten so easy. You can, which will take you like half a day to put together, yeah. or you can even just put it on LinkedIn. Like I know plenty of data scientists who, and maybe that's even a better way because, you know, like Randy Lau, Kristen Kerr, Kate, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kate Strachny, like plenty of data, uh, uh, Fabio Vasquez, plenty of data scientists who just post their work, not even like like revolutionary um, yeah. packages they build. They just post what they're actually learning themselves and they post it on LinkedIn, which has like a blogging capability now, or on Medium, and then other people get to read it. So not only you can show that off to employers, potential uh, companies you want to work for, but other people get to read and other people get to learn. How great is that? Like, even if you don't get a job from it, you've helped like five people learn the language as well. Absolutely. And, and even if like no one or hardly anyone reads it, like the act of writing, mm. writing up what you've done, like that, you know, that helps you and improves your, your communication skills as well. Totally. Uh, and yeah, really, really valuable. And just to, to add about what you said, uh, like about the laundry list, the list of qualifications, uh, like I would say that a lot of the time these employers unfortunately just don't know what they need because data science has only been around with like 10 years. Is, it's yeah. not even... It's not accounting that's been around for hundreds of years that yep. is very structured and you know exactly I need this accountant, I need a tax accountant, I need, yep. you know, like an actuarial accountant or corporate accountant. Here it's like you just shooting into the sky. <laughs> so you might yep. as well just write everything. So, um, yeah, approaching it from that perspective, I agree with you. Just just apply for the jobs anyway. Have that portfolio, build it up, and eventually you'll get something very, very good. Okay, another career question from Elizabeth West. How will programming literacy shape the future of workforce? Should everyone learn to code? How can we create pathways to efficiently translate across the space between those who code and those who don't? Interesting question, really touches on what we talked about already today. Yeah, so I pretty strongly believe that uh, I don't think like everyone should, like not everyone's going to become a programmer, but I think everyone should be able to code. Because I, it just like unlocks so much, so much value. Like there's just so many of these like little things in my own life that like mm. I kind of automate through code. Like we have a bunch, like always doing little R scripts that kind of take data out of Google Sheets and do various things. Or like, well, like a send, e- like send a bunch of emails with code. Mm. It's just the, the the ability to automate these kind of like mundane life tasks. I think is so valuable that that everyone should learn should learn it but uh, wouldn't you say it's like like asking for everyone to learn how to code it's like asking everyone to learn how to dance you know maybe some people are just not inclined that way and it'll be extremely they might do it but it'll be much harder for someone to learn to code than somebody else yeah and i think that's that's fine i think everyone should be like i don't know i think you should have the everyone should have the opportunity and be encouraged to learn how to program it's not you know if you don't like it you're not forced to do it but I, I i do think it is it is something that's accessible to the vast majority of people um it, you know it's not this thing that they can only be done by the like the intellectual titans like anyone can code like not everyone is going to become a great programmer but anyone can learn like a few little useful things that'll you know solve some problem in their life and i think to me like that's the key the teaching programming to like a wider audience is focusing on like what are some useful tools that I can give people that it's not about like 
data structures and algorithms and programming for the sake of programming, but what are some neat like neat tools that I can give people? And just, I think data science is so great for that because everyone has like some data they're interested in. Everyone has something like some website that they read all the time. And I'd love to be able to like scrape a bit of information off and aggregate it over time and see what's changing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Very, very interesting um, comment on that. Uh, okay. And so to finish off, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about some future related questions. It's like, Maybe three or four questions related to the future. You good? You good to talk about predictions? Are you? Are you do you have a crystal ball, Adley? I do not, but I will. Uh, I will try to give predictions that will not be famously wrong. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Um, so Morgan Mendes asks another question. Uh, what will be the most challenging aspect of learning data science in the future? Uh, I mean, I think it's going to stay what it is today, which is like wrangling crazy data formats into something that makes sense for you i think that's like gonna be that's always gonna be hard gotcha uh next question from martin kemka given the rise of fake news deep fakes and the reduction of trust in data science will statistics be useless in the future and will we just rely on intuition or truthiness I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that like statistics and data science and kind of thinking rationally like that, those are the 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 the, the key tools kind of against the the, the fight mm. like against fake news and like meme things and, and listicles. Like it, it's it's hard. Like it, you know, the the brain just has so many shortcuts. It, your brain always wants to do the minimum amount of thinking to. To solve a problem and i think like statistics and data science like that that's sort of part of like training your brain to, to look a little deeper and to consider things a little more fully mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand they're also the the tool of the perpetrators right like the statistics and data science i mean AI is... but this is like you know there's lies damn lies and then there's statistics like people have been <laughs> saying this for like you know, the last 200 years <laughs> so yeah. i don't think that's anything new Okay, gotcha. Uh, another one from Jennifer Cooper. Um, one thing we should all be doing to make sure we are ready for the future of data science and machine learning. What is that one thing in your perspective? Mm, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you two things. Okay. Uh, learn to program and uh, like learn the idea of tidy data or normalized data. Like just learn how to collect data in a form that can be easily analyzed later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, and there's another question here about the future uh, from Ashish. It's how do how does the future uh, look like for R? But we kind of already spoke about that in a way. So I'll rephrase that to what is the one thing that you're most excited for R in the coming future? Mm. I mean, the most... These, I, I'll tell you what I'm most excited about right now, which is in the very near future, which is mm -hmm. we're currently working on a, a big release of Dplyr. So we're going to be releasing Dplyr version 1.0, uh, nice. hopefully in March. Just a bunch of, um, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happened behind the scenes. We've like understood there's this kind of crazy idea that you can have a column of a data frame that is itself a data frame. Um, which seems like a crazy idea and it kind of mm. is, but it's like unlocked, like a, it's sort of like a data structure. It's unlocked a, a bunch of potential in dplyr, making things a bunch more flexible so you can express 
kind of more ideas, more succinctly with fewer functions, just the whole, I'm really excited about this release. It's going to be a big release. Uh, hopefully gives you more power and it will be easier to use, easier to learn in the long run, which is kind of always the, the thing that makes me most excited. Wow, that's really cool. This this is a great uh, spoiler. I think this will, <laughs> this podcast will come out just before that then. Awesome. Okay, well, we're done with all the questions and thanks for you know stay, staying on the show for a bit longer than uh, our usual hour. It's been, it's been really exciting. Um, Hadley, huge, huge uh, like respect for everything you do and there's plenty of fans in our network and I'm, I'm personally a fan. I have your ggplot2 book. I learned a lot from you. So please keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're a great contributor to the community. Amazing, amazing work. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, have, have a fantastic time in, in the US and uh, cool. speak to you some other time. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, everybody, for being part of our conversation today with Hadley. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and learned a lot of new things from Hadley. Uh, my personal favorite was the way that Hadley actually thinks about the language and his advice about looking at things from a fresh perspective, like forgetting what you did in the past and looking uh, with a new mindset at the same problems and coming up with different solutions. I think it's worked really well for him and we can see the results. They're impacting all of us, impacting the world. And that is something that we can all take away and apply in different areas of our careers and even lives. And on that note, make sure to follow Hadley on social media. You can follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, he has almost 100,000 followers. By the time you're listening to this, it probably is 100. If it's not, let's push it to 100,000. And of course, check out our studio if you haven't yet. Hopefully, you're inspired to check our studio and some of the different packages Hadley is working on. As usual, you can find all of the links and materials mentioned on the show in the show notes at superdatascience.com slash 337. There you will also find the full transcript for this episode. And on that note, if you know somebody who is interested in our studio, who's a fan of our studio, who likes Hadley's work, who is following Hadley, then give them the gift of sending this podcast. Send them this a link to this podcast so they can also listen and learn from Hadley. Uh, it's very easy to share. Just send them a link, superdaysands.com slash 337. And once again, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>